And there came a day. A day unlike... Wait. No, that's been done. Hmm. Who knows what evil lurks in... No, that is that other thing. What has yellow skin and rights? Ah, forget it. You're listening to Panelology. Excelsior, oh, damn it. Welcome to episode 271 of Panelology. I'm Alex, and this one might be a weird one. Uh, Brian has had a work thing come up at the last minute and needs some time today just to catch up and also catch up on being a human. I did not have the time to uh, give any of our usual co-host guest hosts a heads up to uh, get some reading done and fill in, so I'm going to try to tackle this one on my own. If uh, at any point you decide that's not your thing, that's cool. I figured better to put something out than nothing out. And if you are looking for something a little more normal from us, then later this week sometime you will get our September 2021 solicitations episode. Jin and I recorded that a couple of days ago, and uh, I just need to edit it and get it out there. So with no further ado, let's jump in and talk about some comics. First up, a new series from Ahoy Comics, Black's Myth Number 1. This is written by Eric Palicki, art is by Wendell Cavalcante, and letters are by Rob Steen. This is a mystery book of sorts, let's say a paranormal mystery book. Uh, it is about a private investigator named Strummer and her sort of assistant, sidekick, comrade-at-arms, Ben Silat. Uh, both of them have some magical, mystical, paranormal background. Uh, Strummer is a werewolf. I think we learned that in the solicitation text, so I don't mind saying that up front. I'm, I'm not going to say what Ben's background is, because that's a fun reveal in the issue. Uh, Strummer is a private investigator who, while trying to get some photos for a client, gets shot with a silver bullet, which raises a lot of questions. Like, how did they know she'd be there? Who did it? Why? And where did they get these bullets? And that's very much what this first issue uh, tries to answer. We spend time kind of individually with both Strummer and Ben. Ben goes to try to get the rest of the photos and stumbles into maybe the beginnings of some answers. Uh, we also get a sort of cult-like group of Nazi fascist shitheads, uh, as all Nazis and fascists are, who we learn don't like that Strummer is a werewolf because they think this is their birthright as white men and as a woman of color, she doesn't deserve it. Uh, then we learn maybe where these bullets came from and where the gun that fired them came from. This raises, I think, more questions in and of itself. Uh, and, I mean, that's that's what this is. This is a mini-series that's going to be focused on answering all of these questions and taking its time to get there. And it's a lot of fun. I like its sense of humor. Uh, it never takes itself too seriously. It doesn't lean into the, like, detective noir vibe which i love but which i think might be a little bit too much on top of uh on top of all the occult paranormal there's a, a great moment when strummer is explaining the rules of being a werewolf in this world and as an example of that sense of humor makes an aside about like the three nights when she has to be a werewolf and has no choice in the matter and has to go do something in that time and you don't really know if that's a joke or real if that's something we're gonna visit in this series or in a follow-up to it or if it's her just kind of having some fun with Ben. So those kinds of moments I think really make this stand out. Uh, the art in here is very expressive. It is all black and white. Uh, the issue is the series is not colored, but I don't think not being colored gets in its way. Uh, sometimes I personally just have a little trouble like reading where the field of vision is focused without some colors, but the shading and the way that panels are structured and focused helps keep everything clear. Uh, faces are really expressive. 
I really dig it. Let's move on to another new uh, mini-series, this one from Boombox. It's called Mamo. It is by Sass Millage, that's M-A-M-O, Mamo or Mamo maybe. So this is about a person named Orla O'Reilly who's returned to their hometown, uh, the small village where their grandmother lives or lived to deal with their grandmother's death. Uh, They are immediately kind of recruited by a young woman named Joe Manalo whose mother is sick, is possessed by something. Orla resists this early on and eventually comes around and realizes maybe there are some consequences to no one having taken up their grandmother's responsibility as sort of town witch. Um, Without a witch, like, the fae in the woods have become more aggressive. Trees are growing up through houses. There's no one to sort of negotiate and deal with the, the balance between sort of the magical world and the natural world and just the physical world that the village's residents inhabit. And Orla sees more and more of this as we go. This is where, like, the timing and panel layouts and facial expressions really feel vital to this book. Orla says way more through expression and physicality and pauses than than they necessarily do with words. Uh, Orla... Even once Orla starts to see the consequences of no one stepping in for Mamo, they still don't really want that. They still resist. And that resistance and how that resistance erodes plays out in those kinds of moments. Uh, it's really good. It's, it's, it's a miniseries. I think it's five issues. And I really, really dug it. I'm looking forward to seeing more of it. It's a gorgeous book. The storytelling is really strong. The character work is fantastic. Definitely worth picking up. Uh, And it's all ages friendly. It's Boombox. Moving over to DC. uh, I want to talk about Justice League number 64. Actually, both both pieces of this. The main Justice League story and the Eternal Night, the next Justice League Dark chapter. Uh, The Justice League story, which is the first part of a new arc called United Order, is written by Brian Michael Bendis. Art is by Steve Pugh, colors by Nick Filardi, and letters by Josh Reed. And as is kind of the case with all of Bendis' DC work so far, this is really pulling threads from kind of all over the place. Uh, part of the reason I want to talk about it is if you have only been reading his Justice League run, there might be some threads that you either want to go check out or that just don't totally make sense or feel kind of out of left field. Uh, but if you have been reading his other work, I think it makes sense that they all are starting to come to a head here. The The United Order that's mentioned in the title is actually sort of a prototype of the Legion of Superheroes. It's the honor guard for the United Planets, and we meet them early on at the trial of the Sinmar Utopica. The Sinmar Utopica was introduced in... Bendis' Superman run that wrapped up before before Future State and Infinite Frontier. So if it's not familiar to you, that, that might be why, if you jumped on with those books. Uh, we also see a little bit of Ollie and Dinah. Uh, and someone's following Ollie, who mentions some ties to Checkmate, uh, which is another Bendis series that's coming out right now. I think that's the only other Bendis book coming out at the moment. Uh, we have kind of the return of of Naomi McDuffie's parents, who we met in Naomi, and some more some more ties to what's been going on so far in Justice League through her and kind of the history we we learned of hers in her solo series. Um, and actually, I really like the, the training sequences with her here as well. Uh, you don't necessarily think of Aquaman and Queen Hippolyta and Black Adam as the people who might train a a new hero, but seeing that dynamic's a lot of fun. Uh, Bendis continues to get a lot of mileage out of a Black Adam who does not play to characters' expectations, and those moments still really shine to me. So there are there are a lot of moving parts here. I think Bendis uses them very well, and I don't think not having read the uh, the previous books that he's pulling from 
necessarily gets in your way of enjoying this. But if if you wanted to find out more about those things, those are the books I'd point at. Uh, his Superman in Action, Naomi, maybe check out Checkmate, uh, which I think you could even probably jump in on and not be too in the weeds on if you haven't read Event Leviathan, but that's all on DC Universe, DC DC Universe Infinite. I think that's what their comic service is called. Uh, that's all there now, if you wanted to check that out. Um, and Steve Pugh and Nick Filardi, I think, are a really strong art team for this issue. The the big, crazy fight sequences uh, between the United Order and the Sinmar Utopica are a lot of fun. They're very vibrant. I, I love Nick Filardi's color work in general. There's a lot of good layout work in this issue, uh, which... I think that layout work is something that artists who work with Bendis uh, really benefit from being skilled with because Bendis is not afraid to use dialogue and knowing how he's going to use dialogue and having an idea of how to lay things out to flow naturally and, and uh, leave space just for the word balloons really, really backs him up as a writer, and I think Steve Pugh does that very well here. Switching gears to the next chapter of Justice League Dark, this is called The Eternal Night. It's written by Ram V, with art by Sumit Kumar, colors by Romulo Fayeder Jr., and letters by Rob Lee. I've said before, I think the thing that, that this story does incredibly skillfully is make the most out of a 10-page page count. I never feel reading this like I've been shortchanged uh, without a 20-22 a page Justice League Dark ongoing. Obviously, I'd love that if it happened, but I don't, I don't necessarily feel like I'm missing anything because of how smart the storytelling choices here are. In this case, we're actually taking a break for the most part from seeing the JLD roster, who are only in two pages of the story. And focusing in on Batman and Elnara Rashtu, who is the 13th knight of Arthur's court. And they're both kind of independently investigating the same thing. Batman is following the sort of occult set of crimes that he now realizes are magic-based, and that's why he's having a hard time tracking him down. While Elnara is following this, like, psychic cry for help, this mystical cry for help that she's picked up on. And it's a really smart way to show how competent and capable Elnara, who we've seen a couple of times in the series, but who I'm not, I'm not familiar with if she predates it, uh, just to see how capable she is. Batman is a little outside of his element, and she can keep up with him, and then actually even has an edge on him in a lot of ways. And seeing Batman in here is fun. Seeing Batman involved with the the mystical stuff because that's not his shtick is fun in a different way than than a lot of Batman stories get to be. I think by taking him out of his element. But at the same time, that also provides a strong reminder that a character like Elnara, who is good at this, uh you know, really can come to play, even if we've never seen them before, whether that's through being a new character or just not being familiar. The art in this issue, uh, which again is Sumit Kumar and Romulo Fayardo Jr., really, really stands out to me. I think a lot of a lot of the pacing and visual choices they make are very smart. Um, Kumar's layouts in fight scenes feel active uh, in conversational scenes still feel energetic. There's a lot of posture and facial expression that really drive home where everyone's at. Uh, and then in, in we have a pair of pages that deal with the, the dark roster. And in those, we get this almost just sort of narrated, okay, you saw what happened last time. Here's how they, like, resolve that. Everyone finishes up what they were doing. They go home, kind of do their own thing. Uh, we see a page of basically flashback against narration and a page of Zatanna and Regman having a conversation about his joining the team. And he kind of realizes maybe, maybe her powers aren't 
working quite right. Maybe something's up with her and lets her know that. Uh, and then we, we rejoin Batman after that. And again, there's more just like good active layout and uh, a reveal at the end who's a character I wasn't familiar with. I did look up because I kind of knew the name. Um, I'm, I'm not going to spoil that reveal, but like there's a lot to hook you in here. And I just, one of the things that has been a lot of fun for me as a reader is being able to tell how much fun I think Rom V is having in writing this script. Every every issue, at least once for the last few issues, has had these these just little fun moments that and I think this is back to the trick about making it feel like a full length story without having that page count. There are still moments amidst everything else that you could cut to to do something else in those page counts. But that leaving in gives you, as a reader, a moment to, like, laugh at something or to catch your breath or to process. Uh, in this case, just the way somebody one-ups Batman in a very Batman way. Uh, you don't need, you, you get the same information otherwise. But here, one, it's just a funny beat. It ends a scene well. Uh, it, it works kind of as a button on the first half of the story. But also, it's it's there to to have some fun, and I think it's important that like, even in a sort of grim end of the world mystical book, like you've got to have that levity to to reinforce the other. I think it's just really smart storytelling all around. Absolutely digging it. The nice house on the lake, number two. So this is uh, I'm probably not going to spend quite as long on this one. I think in a lot of ways, this issue is just showing how everyone deals with the new situation outside of the immediate fallout. Uh, and I'm still a little hesitant to, to even spoil what happened in the first issue. I know it sold out and there's another printing coming this week. So I don't want to, don't want to get too far in the weeds there, but now that everybody in the lake house knows what's up and has sort of had their moment to panic, we start to see how everyone processes that information and, starts to work through trauma. Uh, whether that's denial, whether it's trying to find a way out, whether it is uh, getting angry, whether it is even, even like, regret, wishing that uh, there's a character who wishes that their host were one of the other people trapped with them rather than their host, that it had been anyone else pulling the strings just because, to them, their host had always been a very comforting, friendly person, someone whom they... They loved dearly as a friend and aren't sure how to value that relationship now. Uh, the interpersonal really drives this. Uh, there are a couple of cool moments that are weird or, or uh, bring some more explicitly otherworldly moments in. Like, there's a statue that a character finds that when you touch it shows you your home. And watching how other characters interact with that, that weird, that sort of weird totem that also gives them information. It serves a practical story purpose, but it also gives them weird information and gives them this moment of choice. Do I want this knowledge or not? It's, it's really fascinating. Uh, I think Tynan has done a really smart job here of building something that is not necessarily based in plot twists or based in big world-changing reveals after after the one at the end of the first issue but instead is going to be based on like how relationships evolve and change and affect each other uh obviously this is only the second issue there may be new wrinkles and developments and i may be way off base there this may just get straight up weird but i like that at least for this issue we're we're actually grounding it outside of weirdness. I like how how almost mundane it is in that way. Reading it reminded me a lot of of like kind of how everybody has processed the last 18 months in real time dealing with quarantine and isolation and all of those sorts of world-changing ideas. I can't really imagine that this book exists outside of that context. Uh, or certainly that it hasn't been affected by that context. And I think it's certainly possible to read it without ever reading it as an allegory for 2020 and COVID and all of that. But 
I absolutely think that's there and that it's sort of a really smart exploration of a similar kind of grief and trauma and processing. Moving on to Suicide Squad number five. This is written by Robbie Thompson. Art is by Dexter Soy, Eduardo Pansica, Julio Ferreira, and Joe Prado. Colors are by Alex Sinclair, and letters are by Wes Abbott. Uh, this is also the start of a new arc. This arc is called Earth 3. If you read Future State, you probably won't be surprised to learn that Amanda Waller is interested in the multiverse. Honestly, if you know much about Amanda Waller, you're probably not surprised to know that, given that the multiverse is public knowledge now in the DC universe. This issue mostly follows a character named Bloodsport, who I'm not super familiar with. I can guess was probably a 90s invention or 80s invention. Uh, I have no attachment to this character, which is kind of perfect for Suicide Squad, given, you know... The title. Uh, Bloodsport has been recruited by Amanda Waller to visit various Earths throughout the multiverse, gathering resources and intel. And uh, his whole thing is that he can pull weapons out of nowhere as long as he has a supply to pull from. So Waller keeps him stocked and he does her dirty work. At the top of this, he is on Earth 3 and we get some really some really smart moments that sort of show us in the timeline of Earth 3 where we're at. We're right around the Starro invasion just before and just after. We actually see the moment where Ultraman throws the Daily Planet truck into the Daily Planet building that we saw back in Crime Syndicate number one. All of those moments here are welcome, I think, if you've been reading that series to give you an idea of when everything lines up. Uh, Bloodsport's main mission here is just recruitment. So he, he comes across Black Siren and says, oh, hey, she'd be great. Waller says, yep, take her. Uh, that obviously doesn't go according to plan. Um, and we get kind of into the wrinkle here when Ultraman isn't affected by Kryptonite after he shows up. And all the ways that things might be different on this Earth. Uh, once Ultraman gets the jump on Bloodsport, that raises a lot of questions about, like, what what becomes the dynamic between the crime syndicate and the Suicide Squad in these books going forward? Uh, I don't know that there's necessarily anything inherently shocking or surprising in this issue on its own. Not that that's a bad thing. Like, I think sometimes that's welcome, especially at the start of a new storyline, and one where there are a lot of moving parts, which anything multiversal inherently has a lot of moving parts. Uh, but I think what this does really well is set up some questions about, okay, what, what's the way this escalates? How do we get from Ultraman sees this other, other Earth spy to, as we saw in Future State, Amanda Waller coming and setting up shop on Earth 3, or some other version of that that leads the crime syndicate to Earth 0. Like, we don't know exactly the shape it'll take. I think there's some assumption that we'll get a version of the events of future states at some point in the future, but I don't know that that's going to be exactly the same as what we saw in future state. And if you haven't read future state, like I think you can start to see the shape of some things to come in that. In any case, it's a lot of fun. I think that's the trick to, for me, a suicide squad book. I enjoy is it being fun. It being well-constructed. Uh, yeah, absolutely dig it. The art throughout it is solid. Uh, I always I always dig Alex Sinclair's colors, and they're excellent here. And the last DC book for this week is The Swamp Thing, written by Rom V. Art on this issue is John McRae, who is, is, is guesting in. Colors are by Mike Spicer, and letters are by Aditya Bidikar. This is kind of a great, almost one-shot Swamp Thing issue. Levi Kami sort of feels this call through the green uh, from London to to come help, come help some way. At the same time, Constantine gets called to London to deal with this, like, rise in sort of fascism, police state violence around this one apartment building. And we see the ways these two stories are connected. We see... Uh, the two of them kind of work together, which is a nice moment to kind of each tackle different pieces of the problem from their own angle. 
I, I think it's always really cool to sort of call back to the Swamp Thing Constantine dynamic. But what I really like about this is there was an interview with with Rom V, I believe it was an interview, about blue and green and how he likes to, in a very intentional way, raise questions and get readers to contemplate certain kinds of issues and storytelling ideas and all of that, but without necessarily suggesting an answer or that there is one clean answer. And I think this issue is a great example of that. What this is really interrogating is the way that we tell stories about wartime. In this case, it's it's World War II. But how we tell stories about wartime and how we memorialize acts of heroism or sacrifice or just, at a certain level, even dumb luck in wartime. And as the people telling those stories become removed from those events, as they no longer live in those times, the way maybe we take the wrong lessons, or the way maybe we forget what matters. And a lot of this issue feels like a conflict between the importance of storytelling and remembering history and remembering stories versus the way we mythologize that, and the way that that seeps back into our cultural consciousness. Uh, or at least that's that's one interpretation of it. I think there is an openness around that issue. And that's why I mentioned that interview about raising questions. I think this is a good example of that because there's not one good clean answer to how do you remember historical events and avoid historical horrors without putting those events on a mythological sort of pedestal. I think those kinds of tensions lack a clean solution. And that's where this sort of unanswered question comes from. It's it's a conversation. It's something to be aware of. It's not something you can ever just say, yep, I've solved it. And this issue really feels like an encapsulation of that, that important thing that's also unsolvable. We also get a little hook at the end to, again, the Suicide Squad that feels like it's a really big part of DC right now. Um, which makes sense, I guess, with the movie coming up. I cannot recommend the Swamp Thing enough. Uh, if you just want to check out one issue and maybe decide to read it in trade, maybe this is the issue to check out. Uh, I know a lot of those issues have gotten reprinted already. If you've ever dug Swamp Thing, this is, I think, a Swamp Thing story worth checking out. Moving over to Marvel. Uh, the Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number 2 is part four of Infinite Destinies. And I hadn't really planned to to go into necessarily each part of Infinite Destinies on its own, but I really love this annual even just as a Spider-Man story. The main feature here is written by Carla Pacheco, with art by Eleonora Carlini, colors by Eric Arseniega, and letters by Joe Caramagna. And it's about Spider-Man dealing with Star, which on the one hand feels like just a total totally different weight class than Spider-Man, right? She can, with a thought, rewrite reality because she has the powers of the reality gym. Only she's not very good at it. And there's a sense of humor to this book that really leans into, like, she's not great at what she does, and he is Spider-Man. And you get that through moments like, she just has a reputation of being not a very competent villain. Uh, she's sort of struggling with, like, having liked the attention and affirmation of being on the Thunderbolts and being perceived as being a hero, even if they were just faking it. Uh, and I think there's an emotional core to her there, but also at the same time, she's been through a lot, and this book gets into some of that, that, like, keeps her from ever totally getting to the point of being a hero. And seeing Spider-Man deal with, with her and try to like reason with her and find that humanity in her and appeal to her better nature uh versus seeing her like just struggling with with that doesn't necessarily feel like it should be a formula for comedy but there are a lot of, of smart funny moments throughout this that actually really really make it work uh in fact the first the first page of this really couple of pages uh 
open with Star declaring no more co-pays and in a clear, like, no more mutants callback. That's kind of the energy this book is bringing. She's kidnapping dogs, stealing diamonds, just, like, doing whatever she can to, like, kind of feel good about herself when Peter's like, I, I know something's wrong, but I can't think of any reality warpers who, who are possibly doing this. Uh, like, it can't be the Scarlet Witch because she stole ice cream and the Scarlet Witch is lactose intolerant, which, love that that's canon now. Uh, I don't know that a lot of the individual beats in this are necessarily shocking, but I think the way they're executed, the sense of humor and heart here really make this both a strong Infinite Destinies chapter, but even if you're not reading that, a really good Spider-Man story on their own. Like, I would absolutely read more of the two of these characters interacting. I love the way Carla Pacheco writes both of them. And uh, Carlini and Arseniega's art is, when it needs to be detail-rich and shadowy and really, really pretty, and when it needs to be, like, active and rough and vibrant, it's those things. So lots of really smart, pacing choices throughout this as well our backup here which is part four of infinite fury written by jed mckay art by juan ferreira and letters by joe caramagna shows us nick fury jr having been taken prisoner by someone who wants to reclaim the infinity gems the infinity gauntlet for themselves and we we saw this character teased i think at the very end of part three but they are in it, in the middle of it now, in this backup, and I never would have expected this character to be involved with the Reality Gym stuff, but it it makes perfect sense to me after Heroes Reborn, which is the closest I want to get to teasing who it is, but it does feel like it's dealing with Fallout of that immediately, which I love, and... It's just an unexpected character to see playing at this cosmic level. So I like that about it, too. I was I was surprised to see them on the page. But as soon as I did, 100% here for it. And now let's go to Krakoa. Uh, we had issue five of Children of the Atom. This is written by Vida Ayala, art by Paco Medina, colors by David Curiel, and letters by Travis Lanham, with design by Tom Muller. Uh... This is this is finally our big meeting between the X-Men and the Children of the Atom, which we saw teased at the end of the last issue. I really like seeing them fight together and interact together. Uh, the The children get this great moment where they get to kind of have the X-Men's back. It's, it's a really satisfying issue. It does the things you want it to do. Um, and it does them in ways that feel earned and feel earnest. It's not, I think, just here to give a reader what they want, but it's it's telling a story in a way that, that earns those choices and lets you know as they come that, yeah, like, it's okay, sit back and enjoy this. Uh, that sort of central question of identity that's been a theme throughout this so far is still in the middle of it here. And we do get confirmation that one character does have the mutant gene. One character is a mutant. And uh, this issue ends with a to-be-concluded card at the end. There hasn't been an issue seven solicited yet, so I think our next issue may be wrapping this up, or we may see this, this book turn into something else, or see these characters, at least some of them, show up elsewhere. But I, I really enjoy this. I, I hope we get to see more of them regardless. I love what Vidal is doing with with this whole roster. Paco Medina and David Coriel, they're they're they have a lot of big, busy crowd scenes, fight scenes, dozens of characters on a page moments, and uh everything is clear and clean and uh the colors are vibrant, the the line work is clear and Everything feels active and energetic. It's just another super strong issue. Looking forward to seeing where this goes or how this wraps up. Hopefully hopefully it's not ending, but I, I'm kind of bracing myself for, for that to be the case. Because I think, I think one way or another this premise has room to evolve and grow, but that may be 
in another title, right? We've seen the the Hickman-era X-Men books kind of come and go and ebb and flow as they need, and it may be that the storytelling makes it make sense to to fold some of these characters into other books or to, I mean, even just maybe take a couple months off and come back. I don't, I don't know that this is the end. I'm just speculating a little bit based on that to be concluded card. Hellions number 13 uh, brings back some, some previous plot points from this series so far that I don't know that I expected to come back or come back quite so quickly, but uh, here they are. The the main thing is the sort of robot baby who Nanny saved in an earlier issue. We we get some more context about what the the AI here is, how it was formed, and maybe not who we see who wants it. We don't really know who this is, or at least I don't. Uh that last issue might have said so. I might just be blanking out on it. But we see the return of that plot, and we also see the return, uh in a very literal sense of one of Mr. Sinister's bad ideas gone wrong, where the clone who he sent to Otherworld and presumed dead has made it back and uh, wants to exact his revenge on Sinister. Uh, I didn't... This was the thing that I did not expect. I did not expect for... Uh, the events of the the Ten of Swords tie-in issues of Hellions, where the team went to Araco to to bring some of those Iraqi characters back uh, to to challenge the Hellions, but we definitely see some ties to them in this issue. We also have uh, at least some acknowledgement that Prodigy is very skeptical of Mr. Sinister because of his whole team dying immediately simultaneously upon stepping foot back on Krakoa uh, after those events. And that maybe the the Quiet Council, or at least members of it, are suppressing an investigation into what Sinister's actually up to. So that's honestly a little terrifying, the idea that there is a power base that is protecting Sinister. But I suppose if he's on the council, that would make sense. Uh, and I don't think I mentioned, this was written by Zeb Wells, art was by Rohe Antonio, with colors by Rain Barreto, letters by Ariana Marr, and design by Tom Muller. Looking at X-Force, number 21, this is written by Benjamin Percy, art is by Joshua Kassara and Robert Gill, Colors are by Guru EFX, letters by Joe Caramagna, and designed by Tom Muller. This is this actually opens with a rare flashback in the X-Books to show us something that we hadn't seen before necessarily. Uh, but it all ties back to the idea of telefloronics, which are a big part of the X-Force run, and sort of showing explicitly the different ways that telefloronics have been developed since the rise of Krakoa. Uh, it gets into the idea of sort of of parallel creation, parallel genesis, uh, where you know you see the same sort of scientific or artistic ideas happen around the world independently of each other, but at the same time, and we see, uh, we've seen already the the Terra Verde version of Telefloronics, and obviously the Krakoan, but now there's a new version of that that is uh weaponizing the Man-Thing formula and uh, weaponizing that against mutants. So the X-Force has to try to figure out how to solve for that. I also uh, want to shout out to Case, who, when he was on the show a couple of weeks ago, raised the question of, of Krakoa having some sort of parasitic or symbiotic influence on the mutants on the island. Uh, this issue does raise that question explicitly, so uh, good job, Case. You you caught onto that definitely before I did, and that's definitely somewhere this book is going to explore. And our last X-Book this week is X-Men number one, uh, from the new creative team of Jerry Duggan writing, with art by Pepe Larraz, Colors by Marte Gracia, letters by Clayton Cowles, and design by Tom Muller. I wasn't totally sure what to expect with this book. Um, this is the return of the X-Men team, uh, who 
technically speaking, had not been present in Hickman era X-Men until now, uh, as a team in the world doing superheroics, which is as much as I have enjoyed this era of X-Men, reading this issue has made me realize how much I've missed seeing the X-Men get to be superheroes. And this this is grounded in that. It still feels of a piece with what's going on. Obviously, Duggan's been largely involved from day one with with this sort of Krakoa era. Uh, off the bat, we're introduced to this tech billionaire who is mad at the mutants for having colonized Mars and renamed it Araco and uh, declared it theirs who, again, is sort of involved in this idea of of artificial evolution. He has augmented himself. We don't, we don't see much more than just sort of an intro to this character, but he definitely feels positioned to be a big part of this run. Most of what this issue is focused on is just the X-Men, who now have a headquarters in New York. They have bought a, a slice of land adjacent to Central Park and have raised the building that was there and built up a treehouse as their headquarters. It's not the largest building in town. It's not the biggest structure, even near where it's at. But they have opened a park uh, called Seneca Gardens that is acknowledging the history and uh, the way that in that part of New York, lands were taken away from residents of color and acknowledging that and building it sort of as a monument to that and as a monument to mutants who have not survived to see this era of their own history. And that's something that Cyclops is explaining to Ben Eric here at the top of the story. We get sort of a walking tour of the treehouse, what's in it. Uh, a lot of really strong layouts this week. I feel like I've mentioned layouts and how they reinforce complicated ideas or support a lot of, of, of discussion, conversation in scripts. Uh, while still keeping it active and keeping everything moving. This issue also does that. Uh, Cyclops gives Lorna a tour of the treehouse that functions as ours as the reader as well. And not only is this double-page spread gorgeous, but the layout is so intentional that at one point, like, word balloons get to change direction and move right to left and then change again and go left to right again. And this layout accounts for that. It gives room for those word balloons to go, but it also makes sense reading the change of of motion. Um, the the page I should also mention just the page where we see the treehouse for the first time is absolutely gorgeous. Uh, Pepe Larraz tweeted out the black and white line work for this page, and it's stunning on its own right. I love. Marte Gracia's colors on Loraz as well. Uh, both both colorful, but also like muted in a way. There's a lot of light, but nothing feels neon. Uh, it, it keeps a really natural, sort of outdoorsy quality that, that really reinforces the idea that they're just here. They're part of the park. They're part of the world. They're not trying to stand out. They're simply trying to carve out their own space. Uh, in inside, I mean, everything's yellows and purples, and that same sort of Krakoan architecture meets wood and vine and leaves that we've seen on Krakoa. So, like, both of those worlds exist here, uh, and those color choices and design choices in the art really make them feel consistent without ever feeling like a sore thumb in the middle of Central Park. We also have a big action sequence that, honestly, the only thing I can think of is Evangelion, this giant sort of twisted metal and muscle kaiju robot monster crashes down from space the x-men have to deal with it uh and it's a great a great fight sequence it gives us a sort of a riff on the mutant power circuit idea uh without being like you know we're going to combine these in the specific way to do this new thing we see the x-men basically form a a mech to fight this giant kaiju and each use their powers in a different way to, like, back it up, to give it abilities, to hold it together, to uh, 
hold their own as a team and like we see that sort of shift and change uh a little bit here as we go and at some at, at one point like instead of your fastball special you have like the robot kick and it sends one of the mutants out toward this this space monster uh so it's it's fun it's over the top it's big and bombastic and and super hero-y in a way that Again, and I think this is this is kind of the theme for this book. It feels like a part of this Krakoan world, but also feels more recognizably that Marvel world outside of your window vibe. It feels like a superhero book. It feels it's set in New York. It feels like a part of the Marvel universe in a way that a lot of the X books haven't gotten to feel yet. We see the Avengers and the X or the Fantastic Four show up to try to back up the X Men. They're like, we got it. But thank you for coming. And like we hear both teams say, hey, we're glad to have you back in New York. Uh, there's a text page that is a Ben Yurick, uh, uh editorial about their being back and how it's a complicated thing and how he doesn't agree with all of their decisions or all of their uh, uh, sort of geopolitical choices. But that at a very basic level, he's happy to see them back in New York as heroes. I like that we're seeing these books grounded in that after this moment of sort of the world is mad at Krakoa for colonizing Mars, colonizing Araka. Uh, uh, just another couple of fun nods in here too, we, to uh, the Alluing rocket book. There are two different characters from that who show up in one way or another here. Uh, we also get our callback to Game World, uh, which we saw in, in the lead up to Empire. Uh, this sort of floating casino in space where you can bet on anything. And we learn that they're taking bets on Earth now because they don't want Earth to spread past Mars and infect the rest of the, the universe. Um, so yeah, a lot, of, a lot of moving parts, but I think it's handled really well. I think, I think again, it, it feels both like a superhero book and like a current X-Men book. And I don't think I realized how hard that would actually be to balance until I read this issue that balances it so well. So uh, kudos to to that whole team. Absolutely dug it. All right, is it still good? The Wrong Earth, Night and Day number five. This is our penultimate issue of this series. And we see our, our two heroes, Dragonfly and Dragonfly Man, meet Mandragonfly, the, the sort of futuristic Earth Zeta counterpart of theirs, and learn that he is uh, maybe every bit as corrupt as the rest of this gleaming utopian, quote-unquote, world that has been preying on theirs. Wind number eight uh, intros, introduces us to the Fae and the history of the Fae and the vampires inside of the, the mythology of this world. I really like the world building we see here. I think that mythology is smart and fits with what we've learned so far, but it's like peeling back another layer and learning something else. Uh, and it gives the con it gives a context to the Fae and the vampires that, that makes the relationship and the dynamic between them more interesting. Batman number 110, uh, the, the main feature, the cowardly lot sees, Simon Saint's plan go into effect. Uh, and honestly, it's got me really worried for Miracle Molly. I like that character a lot, and I want to see more of her. Uh, the issue also has a really cool sort of moment between Batman and Ghost Baker. I've really liked having someone who is on Bruce's level in in this book, in that super, super efficient, super planned way that he's always written you don't get to see a lot of other characters do that and having someone who like can have his back in that way makes him feel more human makes him feel more connected i think it's really smart uh then ghostmaker chapter four is is kind of more of what we've been getting the sort of storytelling about these different villains pasts with ghostmaker as he continues his approach to where they're all hiding out waiting for him batman secret files the signal number one uh dropped this week this is the first of a bunch of secret files one shots this one's about duke thomas and it deals with some of the other cast members from we are robin which i wasn't expecting but i like seeing them come back and seeing them to some degree even reject duke's decisions to become part of the official bat family 
I think there's a lot of really clever there. Uh, this also sets up some story beats that don't get resolved within it. So I, I wonder after this if we're going to see whether we're going to see more of these story beats come up in Batman or Fear State, or if uh, if they might be followed through in these other Secret Files one-shots, or if at some point we're going to see a Signal series or mini-series announced for later this year. Uh, I would be very open to seeing more of this based on this issue. Crime Syndicate number five uh, gave us our second part of First in War, First in Pieces, uh, which is sort of the second arc of this miniseries. I actually really like this six-issue miniseries having a two-arc structure. I think it lets us see... It lets it feel like more than just an introduction to this version of Earth 3, or just a reboot. But it also lets us see sort of how people, how its characters end up in the places they, they, it, they'll they be in, I guess, whenever the Suicide Squad crashes the party. Uh, also, shout out to this, this universe's version of Red Hood. I adore this character design and these choices and everything about them. Crush and Lobo number two continues everything I loved uh, with the first issue. Uh, Crush is out in space heading to go visit Lobo in space prison. Everything that can go wrong does. The the sense of humor, the narration in this book absolutely sell it. And I think Amon K. Nawalpan and Tamra Bonvillain's art is a really great choice for a book that's bridging between being a funny, sort of self-deprecating, character-driven book, but also a space adventure. Uh, it's bright. The colors are bright in a way that, that serve both, but the line work and the, the sense of motion like can feel appropriate and you know, floating through the vacuum of space every bit as much as, say, Crush playing on a playground. Uh, just a really great creative team for this book. Absolutely love it. Green Lantern number four, we get kind of a cool how does Jon Stewart get out of this story for the first half or so of this book where he is having to outsmart these these well well equipped slave trading uh war criminals who show up to to try to capture him uh and he just has to outsmart and outplan them uh and then the last the latter portion of this book deals with Joe Mullane still trying to figure out what's going on on Oa make plans, rescue people, and sort of balance the 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 weight and trauma of being in the position to kind of be on the fringe of the core, not be super established, but have survived, and also be there and support Simon and Kelly and like be the responsible adult in the room. The next Batman Second Son number four, I, I talked about all these as individual chapters when they came out, more or less. Uh, this last bit finishes finishes kind of telling us the the history of Jace Fox, what he's been up to, why he why he has the relationship he does with his family, and positions us for the I Am Batman miniseries that starts soon again from John Ridley. Wonder Girl number two uh, deals more with Yara's attempt to to just get where she's going in Brazil, just to kind of exist. Uh, all of all of the Amazons from around the world are trying to stop her and intercept her, and uh, whether that means Artemis or Cassie Sandsmark or any number of other unnamed Amazons who we see, like, getting in her way or each other's way, she's just kind of trying to do her thing. And I like that she's a little out of the loop in what's going on. Um, there's a really smart balance here between, like, things happening to her and her also feeling like she has autonomy in the action, like she is making choices and not just a passenger in her own story. The Good Asian number three sees Edison Hark kind of teaming up with, uh, this, this young local woman who is Chinese and kind of feels sort of repressed by virtue of needing to to respect her father's desire for her to sort of stay home and stay out of the spotlight and how that relates to his immigration status and trying to stay under the radar so he can stay in America. 
And it's not a character who we've seen before. I don't know what her role in this book will be going forward. She could only be in this issue. Um, but she's actually really great. She narrates the whole issue. We get it from her perspective. I dig that kind of shift in focus and shift in narration. Uh, it still feels like Eddie's story, but for this chapter, it also feels like hers. Also, shout out to Lee Laufridge, whose color work here feels warm and lived in in a way that that you wouldn't necessarily need or expect in a in this sort of noir pulp comic. Uh, Noctera number five, we get some more lore about this world and learn a little bit of what's going on. Uh, and maybe why why a safe haven is too good to be true. Amazing Spider-Man number 70. This is the prelude to Sinister War. It's very much moving the last few pieces into place for that. Uh, there's at least one big surprise in this, and that comes in the answer to what did Carly Cooper see that day in the morgue, and where is she now? Uh, the answer is nothing good and nowhere good, and I have questions. But the good kind of questions? I'm I'm actually really excited to see where this book goes and how it wraps up. Uh, number 74 is the last issue of Spencer's Run with the, the Sinister War miniseries being a part of that, too. Actually, the next issue of the story is Sinister War number one. The Immortal Hulk, number 48, also kind of sets us up for Endgame here. Uh, Fix-It, Hulk, and Red She-Hulk uh, have a conversation about their relationship, which sounds actually like a strange thing to say about a Hulk book, now that those words come out of my mouth. But that, that sort of gives Hulk the clarity on what he needs to do now. Runaways, number 37, is a mostly silent issue that... Uh, Really, really, Andres Ginole and Di Conifa make the absolute most of the the sort of expressions and motion throughout this this comic are really strong, really solid. I never felt lost to what was going on or had any question of what anyone on 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 the page was feeling. Uh, all of those things were very, very clear and really well executed. Great job to everyone there. This week. Uh, it's a heavy week, at least for me, but not that many new number ones coming out. Uh, I'll mention the Action Comics 2021 annual, which is written by Philip Kennedy Johnson. Art is by Sia Um and Scott Godlewski. Colors are by Hi-Fi and letters are by Dave Sharp. And then also the Flash 2021 annual, written by Jeremy Adams, with art by Fernando Passarin and, Ber and Brandon Peterson. Colors by Hi-Fi and Michael Atiyah, and letters by Steve Wands. Uh, both of those, looking forward to a lot. And Ninjak number one. We had a preview copy of this a couple of weeks ago. We talked about it with Case when he was on. Uh, this is written by Jeff Parker. Art is by Javier Polito. Letters by Dave Sharp with Javier Polito. And I really, really loved this book. Uh, I'm a fan of Jeff Parker writing in general. I'm a fan of Javier Polito's art in general, but the two of them work amazingly well together. Polito really is the driving force behind this book. There's so much smart use of layout and color and ink and shadow and shape that that really make this book visually striking uh, and make this sort of spy ninja story that this book tells really, really shadowy and cool and like feel appropriate tonally for those things. Cannot recommend it enough. Absolutely loved this first issue. Uh, definitely check it out. And that will do it this week. If you have made it to this point in the episode of just me talking into a mic by myself, wow, uh, thank you. I am shocked if anyone has made it here. Uh, but I appreciate it, and I appreciate you hanging out and and still sticking around for this one weird week, I promise not to make a habit of this. I would, however, as always, like to thank Chase Parker for our intro voiceover. Panelology is a member of the Certain POV Network. If you're looking for other cool podcasts about popular culture, check out CertainPOV.com. Come join our Discord. Uh, it's a lot of fun in there. You can visit us at PanelologyPodcast.com, support us at Patreon.com slash Panelology, 
Get merch at bit.ly slash panelology merch, capital P, capital M, or send us your questions, comments, or whatever at bit.ly slash panelology mailbag. Again, capital P, capital M. I'm Alex. Go read comics. CPOV. CertainPOV.com.